Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 4. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 18. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that to make you obey its passions, do not present your members or your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, we will move into chapter 6 tonight, but we won't get to the end of the section that we just read too. But Paul's letter didn't have chapter breaks in it like ours do, chapter 5, chapter 6, so on. His didn't have chapter breaks in it, so it's actually good for us to see how the end of what we call chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 kind of tie together. We have been studying how one man's sin brought condemnation and death to everyone, but so too can one man's righteousness be given to all who receive him by faith to cause us to pass from death to life. We've been looking at that in our study. But Paul's now saying that as much as Adam was a type of the one to come, Jesus, his passing sin to us, Adam's passing sin on to us, and Jesus' giving us righteousness aren't received in the same way. Adam's sin problem was automatically passed on to all people as evidenced by everyone dying, as we've looked at in, in Romans chapter 5. It was just automatically passed on. You're born that way. But Jesus' gift of righteousness is not just automatically passed on. It has to be received. But just as one man can affect everyone, another one man, Jesus, can affect everyone. But instead of it just being automatic, you have to receive it by faith. That's the difference between Adam, what Adam has done. That's one of the differences between what Adam has done and what Jesus has done. So go with me to Romans 5 again and look at verses 15 through 17. It says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, if you look closely, have you noticed how what Adam gave us brought what? Death. And what Jesus has done for us brings what? Life and righteousness. And that's what we're going to take a look at. But do you notice how it keeps saying free gift, free gift, free gift? A gift has to be received. It's offered. But it needs to be received, and that's what we even see here. All those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness can reign in one man. And we'll come back to that word reign in a little bit. Go to John chapter 1 in your Bibles, to John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. 
In the beginning of John chapter 1, it talks about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it talks about how in chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. But look at verses 10 through 13. He, this is Jesus, the Word, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so Jesus came into the world, and His own people, the Jews, didn't receive Him, but all who receive Him are given the right to become what? Children of God. You become born again spiritually, and you become children of God. Go to John chapter 3. Let's look at... A very familiar passage to all of us, but look at what it says now in this context, how salvation and this free gift of righteousness, this passing from death to life has to be received. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that though He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, remember, death passed on and condemnation came with it, and with the condemnation came judgment. And we're born dead in our trespasses, in our sins. If we by faith receive the free gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus, believing that he is, well, when it talks about believing in his name, it's believing that he is who God says he is. And that he, and what does God say? He's the only way to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. You can't say, I believe that Jesus is the way for me to go to God, but I believe there are many ways. That's not believing in Jesus' name. Because Jesus' name is that he's the only way. He's not one of many. He's the only way. But when you believe that he is the only way and you put your full faith in him, that your righteousness will be given to you as a gift. Actually, his righteousness given to you and I as a gift. You actually pass from death to life. But remember, if we're born in our trespasses and so on, we're born spiritually dead. If you choose not to receive Jesus and accept his free gift of righteousness and through faith in what he's done for you, where are you in right now? If you're born spiritually dead and you're under condemnation, you're still there. And that's why he said, here Jesus himself said, whoever believes is not condemned, but those who don't believe are condemned already. A lot of people think, well, one day when I stand before God, he's going to weigh my good and my bad. Folks, read your Bibles. The judgment's already been made. The verdict is already set. If you die in that condition, there's no other opportunity. There's no other chance. You've had your opportunity, and you're condemned already. We already know how the judgment's going to play out. The Bible's very clear. But if you, by faith, receive that free gift through faith in Jesus, you can be declared and made righteous. Go to John chapter 6, verses 25. Through 51, a long section here, but listen to what Jesus says. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 25, Jesus says, He says, when it says, When they found him, Jesus found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the, him, on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? By the way, if you want to, you want a suggestion, Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give will, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said to them, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Listen to me, folks. Jesus kept saying that over and over and over. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. And whoever believes will be given to me by my Father. And whoever is given to me by my Father, I will never cast out. Remember, you have been passed from death to life. Oh, and by the way, Jesus' body that he was giving, who it says it over and over. Who did he die for? The world. Oh, there are some that try to teach that Jesus only died for the people that are going to receive it. No, he died for the world. Just as Adam's sin passed on to all men, so Jesus' act of righteousness is available to all men. But it must be received. That's the difference, or one of the differences between what Adam did and what Jesus has done. Now, it's obvious that as much as Jesus' free gift is for all men, only those who believe and receive his gift of righteousness are saved. Let me show you a couple of verses that deal with this. Go to 1 John chapter 2. One of the most clear passages that illustrates the fact that Jesus died for everyone. In 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 2. Talking about Jesus, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? The whole world. That's pretty clear, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Does that mean, then, that everybody's going to be going to heaven? No. Jesus himself clearly made that very clear. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 13 and 14. In Matthew 7 verse 13. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Did you hear what Jesus said? There's going to be many people. Even though Jesus died for the whole world, many people are going to destruction. And there's few that are actually going to be given this eternal life. Why? Well, Adam's sin was automatically passed on to everybody. And they don't have a choice. But whether or not we have this righteousness, this life, is because we have a choice. But, okay, I mean, in our, 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 our human reasoning, we would say, well, come on. Who wouldn't accept that free gift? Why would anybody 
reject the fact that someone else has already paid for all of your sins. Why wouldn't anybody just receive that free gift? Oh, pride's a big part of it. Actually, if you were to go on back to John chapter 3, read the verses right after verses 16 through 18. It says, even though this is available, men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You see, because when you say, Lord Jesus, I believe, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I believe the only way I'll be righteous before God is that I am going to just give you my life. You're not just saying, hey, would you just give me that righteousness so I can go to heaven and live however I want here on the, on the earth? You're saying, I believe that you are Lord. Lord means you control what I do, what I don't do, what I think, what I don't think. My life is yours. And that's where we're going to be moving on to now in our study. Justification is wonderful, being declared righteous. But there's three aspects of our salvation. There's the justification where we've been declared righteous. There's sanctification where what has been given to us is now going to be manifested over time. And then ultimately one day when we get out of these bodies, there's the glorification part where we just get to live for eternity in that awesome state. But we're now going to be moving in our study into the next part. And that's what Paul's dealing with here. He actually talks about how uh, that man doesn't realize this sin problem and God had to do something very interesting to help them see it. I'm going to show you that in just a second. And he does that in order that just as death reigned, righteousness can reign, leading to life and glory to Jesus. So we're going to start moving into that direction now. We, hopefully you understand, and, and I know we have to keep sharing the good news of the gospel of when what justification is, because there's always those who don't understand it yet, and the Spirit of God keeps drawing them. But for many of us who are here in this room, and I'm sure many who are watching now online, you know you're saved. Well, our study is going to start to get real deep for those of us who are in Christ in just a little bit. But go to Romans chapter 5 and look at verse 20. There's a verse that surprises many people when they see it for the first time. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And then he says, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We'll get to that in just a second. Why did God send the law to increase the trespass? I've asked people this question for years. Does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? And everybody thinks, well, he wants them to sin less. No, he wants lost people to sin more. Exactly. Exactly, Bill. What he's saying is, is, remember, death's already passed on to all men. The fact that sin was a problem has already been evident from the beginning of time. Yet men are ignorant to that, or they try to blind their eyes to that truth. And let's be honest, how many people from way, way back, even to our day, still try to convince themselves that they're good people? Even though they've got sin and it's been passed on to them, and they're under condemnation until they receive the free gift of salvation, they, they don't want to acknowledge that. And so God says, I'm going to send my law in order to not only reveal your sin to you, it's going to make you sin more. We've dealt with that in the past. We'll deal with it a lot more when we get to chapter 7. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Go ahead. Until the law. Exactly. I love how you said that. Let me share a story with you real quick that illustrates that what you just said, Sheila. You don't know it's sin until the law points it out. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Because the world doesn't think they sin. They think they're pretty good people. Years ago, when I was in seminary in New Orleans, a friend of mine named James uh, had a job where he would work at night um, in a funeral home because according to state law in Louisiana, if there was a, a dead body in the funeral home, some alive human being had to be in the building. You could not leave a dead body unattended overnight. It's just an old law. And so funeral homes would hire sem seminary students to come and just sit there all night with a dead body. And seminary students loved it because you get paid to go sit and study. They couldn't sleep. They had to stay awake. And so... If you're getting paid to stay awake all night, might as well bring my books and get my study done. And so James worked. He and I also painted houses together during the day and, of course, going to seminary classes and stuff. Well, one day he picks me up in his pickup truck, and he had just uh, worked overnight. 
And he said to me, he said, hey, um, he said, I need your help today as we drive. We're heading to a house to go paint. He said, I got my driver's license taken away last night coming home from the funeral home. I was speeding and they gave me this little pink slip. And what they did back then in Louisiana was if you got a speeding ticket, they gave you a little pink slip and they took your driver's license away. You could still drive on this pink slip, but until you went to court and took care of it, you couldn't get your driver's license back. Plus, if you ever got pulled over again and all you could hand them was your pink slip, you're in trouble. So he said, I cannot get pulled over today. And so he's like, just pay attention to my speed as we're driving. So as we're heading to this house to go paint, we see police officer up on the side of the road just clocking people. And he goes, watch my speedometer. So I'm watching his speedometer. And he was going 35 on the nose. And so we passed the police officer going 35 and he lights us up. So we pull over, he comes up and and the, my friend James says to the officer, officer, I was going 35. I have a witness. I was going 35. And I, he turned to me and I said, yes, sir. Sir, I was watching the speedometer. He was going 35. He said, okay, that's good. I had you at 33, but we'll make it 35. This is a school zone. <laughs> we thought we were righteous. But actually, the law showed us that we weren't. We had no idea we were going through a 20 mile an hour zone. Needless to say, I drove the truck the rest of the day. The law came in to reveal that even though you think you're okay, you're not. But as we'll get to more in chapter 7, not only did it reveal that you're a sinner when you think you're okay, it also fuels sin. We'll deal with that more then when we get to chapter 7. But interestingly enough, even though way back in Genesis chapter 3, God said that death would be the consequence of Adam's sin, the world back then and all the way through now tries to convince itself that they're good people. And not only that, there are a lot of religious people. By the way, listen closely. You may be watching today because you consider yourself spiritual or religious. You may be here tonight, consider yourself a good person. Even the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day thought they were good people, thought they were okay, because they did churchy things, if you will. Go to Matthew 23. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15. Matthew 23, verse 13. Jesus said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Here were religious leaders whom Jesus said, you're not saved. And not only that, you try to make people become like you, and when you make them become like you, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Why? Because not only do they think they're okay when they're not, the religious leader has just told them they're okay when they're not. Folks, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I'm going to be preaching on this topic in a couple of weeks at my home church at First Merritt Island and dealing with chapter 5 about those who were leading the Galatians away from full dependence on Christ. And Paul used some very, very strong language about these circumcisers and his anger and his frustration because they were leading people away from Jesus. Oh, they were religious people. What did Jesus himself even say? If any of you cause one of these little children to fall away, it'd be better for you. If a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown in the depth of the sea, God takes it very serious when we, even spiritual people, lead people away from full dependence on Jesus Christ. And what were the Pharisees doing? They were teaching that righteousness came from being obedient to the law and doing right things and not doing wrong things. And folks, let me tell you, the Bible says there's no one good. There's no one righteous, not even one. We're all born spiritually dead. And the only way we can be made righteous is what? Through faith alone in Jesus and his sinless life, 
his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. And anything added to that, be careful. Be careful. Go to Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Folks, if any of you today think I'm a pretty good person, even as a Christian, be careful. Because i got to be honest with you. I know the things I still struggle with in my flesh. Even though I've been given righteousness, I can tell you right now there are thoughts that go through my mind and attitudes in my heart and things that I do that I'd be ashamed if anyone knew about. I'm not a good, I'll get right to you, Warren. I'm not a good person except for His grace. And I've been declared righteous, but at the same time, I sure would love to see the righteousness of Christ that has been given to me, I would love to see it rain in my life. Wouldn't you like to see it rain a little more in yours? That's where we're going to be going in our study. That's where Paul is starting to move us now to. But you got to get the foundation laid. All right, the law was added to show people their sin problem. And like we'll look at when we get to chapter 7, to fuel people's sin problem. But even though the law caused sin to increase, it could never get too big for God's grace. It doesn't matter how much sin increased. It, God wasn't worried that all of a sudden you'd sin so much that all of a sudden he couldn't cover it. Oh, and then you got Satan lying to other people. He's got some people convinced they're okay when they're not. You've got others who are, he's lied, lied to them and told them, well, they've sinned so much, God could never forgive them. Again, let's believe what the Bible says and not what Satan says. Go to Romans chapter 5 again. Look at verses 20 and 21. By the way, were you wanting to add anything more to that, Warren, than just except for I'm righteous because of His grace? Thank God for His grace. Romans chapter 5, look at verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice the word reign in these verses. To reign is to rule, right? It's to have power and glory. What is sin's glory, according to this verse, verse 21? Death. Sin's glory, what sin's reigning produces, is death. Think of all the damage that has been done in, in people's lives because of sin. That's the glory of sin. That's why a lot of times you'll see Paul write, why do you even want to go do the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things led to death. Why do we? And, and, and for years, and I'm going to touch on this more later on in our study when we get to the next time we gather together, but let me just say this. For years as a pastor, I've had so many people come to me and say, Pastor, if I do this, is it sinning? Or if I go this far, is it sin? And what they're really asking is, how close can I get to sin without stepping over the line? Instead of saying, how close can I get to Jesus? And all of us have to acknowledge, many of us have had those same thoughts. We want to see how close we can get to sin without stepping over that line. Well, if your heart is wanting to get close to sin, you've already stepped over the line. <laughs> but we'll get to that later on. It's where our focus is. Our, the mind comes from the heart. Yep. That's why Jesus is always looking at the heart. And yep. Like addictions yep. and things like that, 80% is starting in the mind. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking? Where's your focus? Well, if 80% could at least be turned over to Jesus. Right. Well, again, it, our heart affects our mind, which affects our actions and so on. And uh, you're exactly right. All right. So 
Sin's glory is death. Sin shows its power through death. But God's grace will be seen and glorified in what? According to Romans 5.21. Righteousness and eternal life. Just as sin reigned in death, this eternal life that we've been given, we've passed from death to life, it can reign, you and I, through God's power and God's grace, can actually allow the reign of this life within us to be seen. And that's what sanctification is. And we're going to get to that at the end of our study tonight. Those of us who have passed from death to life have been given righteousness for God's glory to be seen forever and ever to the glory of God. He didn't just give you righteousness so you could be in heaven with him. He's actually put you on display and he's wanting to display his glory through what he's done, not just by saving you, but what he's done by changing you after you've been saved. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at what I want you to see here, or I hope the Lord wants you to see here from Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Look at how often it talks about what he's done for us being to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I don't think any of us even have a clue to what that really, really means. I think we can learn more and more as we grow in our walk with the Lord. But a full understanding of it, I think, would blow our minds. And I think if we actually did understand it, it would affect our life in ways that nobody would question whether we were saved. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now we need to stop real quick because I'm sure some of you might have just got bogged down in some of the phrasing there about how he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And some of you are saying, wait a minute, Jim, that sounds like God already predetermined who's going to be saved and who's not. No, look at the context. Look at what it's saying here. What he's predestined is that those who would be adopted as his sons would be adopted through who? Jesus. That's what was predestined, that all who would come to him would come through Jesus Christ. It, well, he didn't predestine who'd be saved and who not. He determined the how. He predestined the how of salvation, that we would be adopted through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. It says there in verse 6, look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of, an our, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 6, verse 12, and verse 13 again. Verse 6, all this is to the praise of his glory. Verse 3, he actually says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's praise him. Let's give him glory. Look at the end of verse uh, 12. It says at the end of verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then again in verse 14, how the Holy Spirit's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at, listen to what Paul says in verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy 1 verses 12 through 17, I thank him who has given me strength, in case you're curious who I'm talking about, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't know how many of you just caught what Paul just said here, but he just put into words what we're looking at at the end of chapter 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6. Remember how we looked at the fact that uh, the world thinks they're okay, but they're not? And God sent His law to reveal that and have the sin increase. And we also looked at the fact that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were even worse because they not only were thinking they're okay, they were in thinking they're righteous because of their own good works and keeping the law, and they were leading others to become like them and become twice the children of hell. Which one of those applied to Paul? Both of them. Both of them. He thought he was righteous, and not only that, he was a Pharisee. And not only that, let's add to that, he also was going around and killing anybody or having them put in prison who didn't see what he saw. He was the worst of the sinners. But God chose to save Paul. He wants to save everyone who lit him, but he chose to save Paul so that he could display his glory. If you're here today and Satan's been telling you you're okay in and of yourself, listen to God, you're not. You can only be given righteousness through Jesus Christ and faith in Him and giving your life to Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says that when we get saved, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us and was raised from the dead. And on top of that, if you think you're good because you go to church or you're a religious person or you pray, guess what? If your faith isn't fully in Jesus Christ for your righteousness, if you're resting in anything you do, be careful. You might not have this faith you think you have. And on top of that, I don't know how much sin you've committed. But there's probably a lot of you out there who hadn't killed anybody. But even if you have, guess what? God will give you righteousness. There's no amount of sin that Jesus' death won't cover. Go ahead, Bill. You committed once and you've committed murder or anything else. Actually, well, James chapter 2, verse 10 talks about the fact that if we are able to keep the whole law, yes, stumble at one point, we're guilty as if we broke it all because the law said in order to be made righteous through the law, you have to keep it perfectly. So if you break one, you've already broken all of them pretty much. You're, but at the same time, Paul says God displays his glory. Look at who he's using. The one that fit all those categories. Go ahead. As you think, how, how often did Jesus know what they were thinking? Mm -hmm. Get them in their thoughts before they even uttered a word. Yep. So what we fall. Now, some people might say, well, before I go to the what some people might say, let me say this real quick. If God has saved us to display his grace through righteousness that has already been given to us, and this life, that eternal life that we already have, being displayed and reigning, let me ask you a question. As you go through your life, amongst your family, amongst your friends, amongst your co-workers, people that you run into on the street, is God being glorified because of you? Are people saying, wow, God has really done an amazing work in that person's life. Or are you more interested in people being impressed with you? See, we have a tendency to seek glory here and praise here. Jesus said, don't do that. Do your good deeds before men that they may glorify your Father who's in heaven. Don't worry about whether or not anybody here notices. The question is, is God getting glory? And actually... God will get glory when you're not worried about whether or not anybody paid attention to how much you've done. And actually, at the same time, I'm going to be more interested in just walking closer with Jesus because we'll get to this in our study of sanctification. The Bible actually says that if I walk in the Spirit, I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Too many Christians are spending time, too much time, trying to stop sinning. 
instead of just learning how to walk with Jesus. And as you walk with Jesus, you look back and go, hey, I haven't been sinning. Thank you, Lord. Because it'll become it'll happen without you trying. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Some people might say, since the law came in to increase man's sin and in doing so, God's grace gets more glory. Why not just keep sinning intentionally as believers so God's grace will get more glory? Go back to Romans chapter six now and look at what he says here. He's just said at the end of chapter five that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. As sin increased, grace even increased more. So he says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Those, he's talking to people that are saved. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Go back to Romans chapter 3 real quick and look at verses 5 through 8. Romans 3 verses 5 through 8. Remember how Paul talked about this a little earlier in our study. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. He says, let me make it very clear. We're not teaching in this gospel that if you are forgiven, you can just do whatever you want. That's not what we teach. When we talk about the fact that I'm saved by grace, we're not saying now that you are so forgiven by God and it doesn't matter how much sin you have that God's grace can't cover it. That doesn't mean now we have carte blanche to live however we want. Paul actually says a true believer won't want to see how close they can get to sin. They'll want to see how close they can get to Jesus. That will be the true heart. We'll get to that in chapter 7 when Paul talks about how he has this problem. Because in his inner man, he wants to do the will of God. He desires to do the will of God. Yet in his flesh, he's got this war going on. And many of us who are believers understand this completely. But I just want to say to you that just as sin reigned in death, this righteousness of Christ that we've been given can reign. Can reign in our lives that leads to eternal life. And so I want to just say to you, we're not going to take the time to break it down too, too much tonight because of where we need to go next time we get together. But let me just say this to you. Paul goes on in the next chapters and verses to show that even though it's true that there's no amount of sin that God's grace can't cover, those of us who have received this gift of righteousness will want to live for righteousness and now and not sin. And even though we still have this struggle with a temptation to sin in our flesh, our spirits have been made new, and now that we have died to sin and to the law through Christ, evidence of our salvation is that we will want to live in the resurrection power of Jesus' life. Now, let me say this. We won't do this perfectly, but it'll be our desire. Let's read again now verses 5 and following in chapter 6 of Romans. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that as Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. We're going to unpack this in two weeks when we get back together. We won't have study next week. When we come back together in two weeks, we're going to unpack this section. 
But what I want to do in the time we have left this morning is I want to talk about this word sanctified. Because it's important that we grasp what it means to be able to move into understanding how to let this life of Christ that's within us now, this righteousness, reign. In chapters, um, the first five chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, he lays out, in laying out the gospel, he lays out and has dealt with very wonderfully justification. All right? How everyone's guilty and you're declared righteous through faith alone. And even the law and the prophets have been pointing to that all along. Now, as we move into chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul moves on to sanctification, our living out the righteousness of Christ given to us so that the world may see it. The word sanctified has two parts. All right. The first part is it means to be set apart or different from the world, holy. All right. In other words, when you're sanctified, you're different now. You're not like everybody else. You're separate. You're holy. You've been set apart. You're a saint. Now that messes a lot of people up because of the wrong teaching on what saints are and how certain people have to have done so many, two miracles or all this stuff and then declared later on so many years after they had died to be declared saints and all that. No, the Bible calls those who believe in Jesus Christ saints. You have been set apart. You are sanctified. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, I don't feel like a saint. Well, that's another issue, and we'll get to that in chapter 6, 7, and 8. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he talks to these people who are out there and he's saying you have been sanctified by the spirit. Why? According to the rest of that verse. You've been sanctified by the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Go to Romans chapter one. And let's go back and look at verse seven. Romans chapter 1, verse 7, in the beginning of his letter of this book that we've been studying for a few weeks and will continue for many more, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be what? Saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, to be sanctified means to be set apart. You're holy, you're different, you're a saint. You're a child of God. But there's another aspect of this word sanctified, and it also means the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. You've already been declared righteous. You've been set apart. You are righteous now in the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. But as we've already been touching on, does it always manifest itself in how we live our lives on a daily basis? Nope. But it can more and more and more. And that's what the Bible talks about being sanctified. You've been sanctified and you're being sanctified. And that's what we're going to be moving into. But let me encourage you with something. The Bible clearly teaches that sanctification, the process part, takes a while. It takes a while. You believe that, don't you? Hey, but you know what? That's important to us because some of you were raised in denominations in which you would have special services where that holy certain preacher who supposedly got the power of the Spirit would just lay hands on you and pray for you and some kind of an encounter would happen and you'd walk out of there and you'd think, I'm going to live for the Lord for the rest of my life. I'm on cloud nine. I feel His power. And how long did that last? Maybe not you get out of the door. I don't know, but oh no. Sanctification is a process. We're to run with endurance the race marked out for us. You will actually start to realize how much growth is occurring if you stop expecting all the growth to happen right away. 
For years, I struggled with that myself because I wanted to live for Jesus. I wanted to say no to these certain sins in my life. And if I'm pretty sure you're like me, there are certain sins that you keep struggling with. And I used to, when I was walking in the Lord early on, I learned from my wife how to journal. And I would journal. And if you go back and look at my journals, there were two aspects of them that were a consistent pattern. One of them was I would start off like January 1st. Lord, I'm starting my journal with you and I'm going to spend every morning with you. January 2, Lord, this is going to be an exciting journey. January 10, Lord, we're going to start again. Anybody ever been there? I would see these periods where I'd look really good and then I'd have periods where I'd be like, Lord, really sorry. I, I haven't been doing this like I thought I would. And there were also other parts where I would be writing to the Lord about certain sins that I was struggling with, temptations that I was losing to. And I would say, Lord, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I have back home bunches of journals. And I went back and looked over them. And I started to realize, dude, I'm struggling with the same sins that I was struggling with back then. And I started to feel like a failure. Anybody else have that experience? We are like, Man, I, that same thing that I struggled with back in 1983, I'm now struggling with here in, in 1993. What's the deal? And then the God began to open my eyes as I went back and looked. Even though I'm still wrestling with those areas, there's been growth in those areas. It's not like it was. Oh, it's still there. There are certain things that the Lord leaves in our bodies, if you will, the thorn in the flesh, to keep us relying on Him. And when I stopped expecting to have the sanctification that has been given to me, fully experienced right now at all times, and realized this is a growth process, I started to really enjoy the fact that he who began the good work in me will finish it. That's why you have to keep in the word. But you're jumping way ahead in our lessons, Bill, here. Go ahead. As I've said for years, if you are a believer, you'll never be sinless. But we should sin less. There should be a growth in that area. Oh, without question. So here's what I want us to show this. We who have been given this righteousness now, remember, sanctification has two parts. You've been declared holy. You're a saint. You're set apart. You've been sanctified, but we're still in the process of allowing what has been given to us to be made manifest in our flesh and for the world to see to the praise of his glory. We who have been given his righteousness now must learn how to let him live it out in and through us on a daily basis. And that's what we're going to be moving into. Go to Philippians chapter two. You're going to see you have a responsibility and God has the power. All right. But it's not a well, Lord, just do it. No, he says in the same way in which you received him which was by faith, and you acted on that faith by asking him to come in. In the same way, we now have to believe that the same promises he made about salvation beginning, the same promises will also be there about how to be sanctified. Look at Philippians chapter 2, and we have to act on what he has promised. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Thank God he doesn't stop there. For it is God who works in you both to will, that's the desire, and to work for his good pleasure. Did you see that? We're to take serious this relationship that we've been given, and we're to act on it believing that it's God who's going to give us the desire and the ability to act to carry it out. He's designed it that the only way I can be saved is if I go to him, correct? The only way you can live the Christian life is if you go to him on a daily basis. There's going to be times that you're going to be in the middle of something and you might be in a spat with your spouse and your flesh wants to retaliate and you're going to need to learn how to say, Lord, help me to love him or her right now. Give me your grace. I want to react in a way that's not glorifying to you. But I, apart from you, I can't do it. I need your grace. 
That's why the Bible says that everybody should be quick to listen and slow to speak because man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, how is the righteousness of God produced? If you stop, don't make your first reaction, learn how to say, Lord, I need you. You live within me. You've had victory over this body. You've had victory over the devil. You've been down this road. I need your help. And I need your grace. I want you to work out and give me the desire and the ability to do what it is you've asked me to do. Go to John 17. John 17. Look at verses 14 through 19. John 17, starting in verse 14. Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them. I thought we were already sanctified. Remember, it's a done deal and a process. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That's what Bill was talking about. You want to experience this power that's within you? It's activated by faith in God's word. And if you don't know what he said, you're going to try to handle things with what? Human reasoning. What makes sense to you. When people send me questions and I get them via email or text and I get them all the time from around the country, Bible questions. And by the way, if you have them, send them. I don't mind. If I'm able, I'll respond right away. If I'm busy, I'll let you know. I don't mind answering Bible questions. But you know what you're going to get back from me? Bible verses. I'm not going to use human reasoning and man's wisdom. Well, maybe handle it this way. No, I'm just going to give you the word of God. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it has the power to accomplish what he wants it to do. If you don't want God's word, don't text me. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, didn't that sound pretty good? Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, read the next verse. He who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. Then why doesn't he just do it? Hopefully you know the answer, otherwise we have to start all over. How is righteousness given? It is received by faith. How is the sanctification Manifested, it's received by faith. Just like Jesus died for the whole world and wants the whole world to be saved, but knows the whole world is not going to be willing to turn away from their flesh and say yes to him. In the same way, there are loads of Christians that Jesus lives within and wants to empower, and we don't let him. And he says, I want to. I want to live my power through you. It's for my glory but I want to do it. And he's already promised that he will keep you blameless, body, soul, and spirit, and sanctified completely. That's pretty cool. I want that. He wants that for me. And hopefully, if you're saved, you'll want it too. Now we need to believe that he'll do it, and we'll trust him to do it daily in his time. He's got a schedule. You just have to submit to it. This is why you'll see the word sanctified used as a finished work and a process. We've been set apart, but we're in the process of living it out more and more. Oh, let me just give you a little commercial for down the road. The Bible also teaches that part of how God does this is in community. You really want to experience the sanctification process? It's more than just you by yourself spending time in prayer and in the Word and walking in the Spirit. He's designed it to happen 
together. That together with all the saints, we may know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of the Lord. So don't just go to church on Sunday morning and sit in the pew and be a spectator. Go get plugged in with other things, small groups and Bible studies and get to know each other. Have lunches and meals together in each other's homes or go out to eat. Spend time together and watch how God does his sanctification process in and through his body. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.